There's a lot of precipitation coming down on December 1st. I guess we should be grateful it's rain and not snow because it's 50 degrees. But wow, what a wet weekend we are in for in Northeast Ohio. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. And Lisa is up first. Ohio's elected and administrative leaders have all signed off on drilling for gas and oil under state parks, another example where they're doing something that is completely contrary to what their constituents want. But some people are still fighting this. Lisa, who are they? What's their argument? Yeah, this lawsuit was filed by four groups, the Ohio Environmental Council, Save Ohio Parks, Buckeye Environmental Network, and Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. They're asking the Ohio Supreme Court to review the decision to allow fracking under state park land uh, in Guernsey, Carroll, and Columbiana counties, dozens of acres. The lawsuit's very short. It's only about one and a half pages long. But they argue that the Oil and Gas Land Management Commission failed to consider nine items that are required by law, including things like current land use and economics. They say they did not hold public hearings about this, although they did allow written comments, which much of which came in question because people found their names on these comments that uh, they didn't do. This is the second lawsuit to be filed so far. The, the first lawsuit is ongoing. It alleges that lawmakers bypass procedural requirements that are mandated by the Ohio Constitution. But the judge refused to put the law on hold before the trial. Um, And as we know, bidding is going to begin in January um, for these leases on these fracking under parks. I I just don't understand why we're going in this direction. Everybody that's opposing this is using common sense. I mean, these are the outdoors people who really like the parks. And and yet everybody in, in, in a leadership position is going down this road. It's example after example of the elected leaders going against the will of the state. I, the number of people that are in favor of this is infinitesimal. That's why they had to cheat and fake all the letters to make it look like there's more sentiment because they knew who in their right mind would say, sure, let's destroy the nature preserves we've created in this state for the for people to enjoy until the end of time. I was going to say, they've been surreptitious about this from the get-go. I mean, they added this to a poultry sales bill at the very last minute, and that required the OGLMC to re- accept all fracking requests until the rules are ro- rolled out. So they're already taking bids, and the rules aren't in place yet. When does one elected official stand up and say, the emperor has no clothes? This is wrong. I mean, it is objectively wrong. We shouldn't do it. Everybody knows that. And yet, because everybody everybody elected is in the pocket of the energy industry, they're doing it. You know, they're trying to rip apart the marijuana law that we all voted for, that most of Ohio voted for. They, they just keep going contrary to what Ohioans want. And man, you know, our platforms are reaching the whole state because media has evaporated. So I am hearing from hundreds of people from across the state that are sick of this. They're sick of these guys refusing to do what Ohioans want. This is just a prime example. This is as preposterous as declaring natural gas green energy. Nobody bought that. Everybody looked at that and said, oh, come on, Mike DeWine. What are you doing? You used to stand for something. This is the same thing. You shouldn't drill under state parks. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. And <laughs> I, I do want to point out that this, you know, the, the fact that it was added to the chicken bill, it was also added to, to that bill along with the thing that says 
natural gas is green energy. So yeah, it's, it's just, we are living in a time where people run for office saying they want to represent Ohio and then trying to become overlords that force these wacko notions down the throats of Ohioans. And Ohioans really aren't having it. They showed it in August and November votes. It's a striking, striking moment in our history. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, what's the big flaw in Cuyahoga County government's approach to the growing homeless crisis, according to advocates who are out there tending to these folks? The county has been increasing funding to support the traditional homeless shelters that partner with the county. But there is another layer of the safety net that the county appears to be pretty much ignoring, and that's the seasonal shelters. These are the drop-in zones for people on the street who might be what they call shelter-resistant. That means that for whatever reason, they're uncomfortable in a traditional shelter setting. Maybe they're recovering from drug addiction and they're worried about being around others who might still be using Maybe they have mental health issues that keep them kind of isolated. These are people experiencing homelessness who choose to remain on the street instead of going to a shelter. They're not going to call the county's coordinated intake hotline to secure a bed. And there are estimates that as many as a couple hundred people are in that situation at any given time in Cuyahoga County. But when the weather gets really bad, when winter storms hit and the temperatures really plummet, It's so dangerous to remain on the streets, and that's when these seasonal shelters become so important. There are a few nonprofits that run them in the county, but those nonprofits say that they don't have nearly enough money to keep those operations going through the coldest months. The only open seasonal shelter, which is run by the Metanoia Project, was full to capacity. They have 35 beds. On Monday and Tuesday night, they were packed when the the bad weather struck. In recent years, you know, COVID money sustained those shelters, but that's pretty much evaporated. And to fully fund all the requests for the seasonal shelters would cost the county about $935,000. The county, however, has given only about two hundred fifty to seasonal cold weather shelters and to support the overflow for the, sh- the traditional shelter system. And the groups that run the seasonal shelters say that they haven't even seen their share of that money yet. So a lot of folks were left out in the cold this past week. Yeah, but did I read the story right that there is a surplus in the fund that that could serve this group? Yeah, the Health and Human Services Fund, there is a surplus that could. There is money available. It is just a question of why where, where the county is choosing to allocate it because the county says People should use the traditional shelters. They're saying that's where the resources have been committed. That's where the social services are for people. And they point out that there were some beds available, at least at the traditional men's shelter on Monday and Tuesday night. But there are people who will never go there. That's the point. We still have to meet them where they are and make sure they don't freeze to death on the streets. And the seasonal shelters are the way to do that. But you're right. There is money. So just put it where it needs to go. Well, and a lot of these folks have mental health issues. And the Adams Board has an enormous surplus, millions and millions of dollars. And you just, you're looking at this going, come on, you've got people that will not go to the shelters that you have. So like you said, meet them where they are. Don't force them into something that's uncomfortable. They're going to freeze to death. I just don't get this. The money is overflowing. It's kind of amazing they have this big surplus, but they're putting another tax on the ballot. Right. Kind of a fishy thing to me. But, but these two agencies are overflowing with millions of dollars. We have a crisis on the streets. 
no action whatsoever. This county government is a disaster, man. In every respect, it's a disaster. I guarantee you, if this were Tim Hagan, if this were Peter Lawson Jones, if this were Jane Campbell, if this were Tim McCormick in a county commissioner seat, they would deal with this immediately. Immediately. They'd probably call a special meeting to get it done. And we've got a county, you know, Chris Ronane, all he does, all he seems to do is go take pictures with groups, big flashy smiles, say, hey, it was great to be with so-and-so, or pictures of the sunset. It's like, enough already. Get some business done. And this particularly doesn't strike me as a very complex problem to solve in the short term. I mean, just just commit the dollars and it's it's relatively low cost. I mean, in, in the grand scheme of the, the county budget and the HHS levy dollars, you know, this is less than a million to solve, uh, you know, to keep people safe uh, through the winter. But you know why they're not doing it? Because we have ward council people that don't give a damn about Cleveland. We've created this myopic county council that no longer looks at the county-wide problems the way we did with the county commission. They just look at their little neighborhoods, and there's no homeless there, so why we, why should we spend any money on the homeless? We have, we have destroyed the purpose of county government with these ward council people who no longer think about the greater good. And meanwhile, these nonprofits that are providing the shelter space are so stressed out trying to figure out how to get through the, the winter. There are two that are about to open a seasonal shelter in Slavic Village uh, for the winter, and, and they said that they only have enough money to operate their shelter for about six weeks. So they have to be really judicious about which six weeks they're open because they certainly want to be open during the coldest nights of the year. It's we got to get rid of this county government. We got to go back to the way it was. We were better off when we had people that focused on the macro and not the micro. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Sports betting hit with a giant splash in Ohio in January, but let's face it, the first half of the year is not prime sports season in this state. The fall is. Or what happened with sports betting in October when pro and college football were in full swing? Sports betting spiked in October. This was the biggest month we've seen since January, which is when we launched sports betting. And there was a whole lot of promotional credits in January. People were getting free bets left and right. We didn't have the same thing in October, but that's when people wanted to bet on football and basketball and maybe even some baseball. So Ohioans bet $748 million on sports in October and compared to $1.1 billion in January. God, it's so much money that oh, you just feel like is flushed down the toilet. Doesn't doesn't it seem like so many other beneficial things could be done with that money? I mean, I guess people see it as entertainment. They're, they're doing it probably with friends and they're doing it on their phone, probably sitting on their couch and they just want to see what happens. I mean, they made some of that money back, right? They, some people won money. We didn't. It's not like they lost $748 million total. Um, but, but it is a lot of money. And remember the state is taxing that at 20%, but we've got a Republican legislator who wants to knock that down to 10%. Yeah. Which will not help the residents at all. It would just help the very well-heeled gambling company. Oh, he thinks it's going to help the betters get better deals. No, he doesn't. He's looking to get (laughs) campaign contributions from the betting companies. It's just another example of Ohio's legislature being bought and paid for. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The international trickbot gang wreaked havoc around the globe and in Northeast Ohio, and one of its perpetrators was prosecuted here. Lisa, what did he plead guilty to this week, and how long he might 
might he spend in prison for all the headaches this group caused? He is 40-year-old Vladimir Dunayev, a Russian citizen who pled guilty to conspiracy to commit computer fraud and to commit bank and wire fraud in Cleveland Federal Judge Solomon Oliver's court. He faces a five to six and a half year prison term when he's sentenced on or before March 20th next year. Dunayev was a member of the Russian TrickBot cyber gang. They used ransomware to infect millions of computers across the globe stealing 33 million bucks from Americans and $180 million globally. The case landed in Cleveland because there were several Northeast Ohio victims, including the Avon School District, which lost $471,000, and a North Canton business that was out $750,000. Dunayev was the malware developer, so he wasn't really a high-level planner. He just created the code that they used. He was arrested in South Korea back in 2021. He's the second person to plead guilty. Alawite was the first. She was sent to prison for two years and three months. There are 14 other gang members that are charged, but they're all still at large. It doesn't seem like enough prison time to me for the kind of headaches they're causing for public agencies. I mean, these are school districts and people that are trying to do the public's business and they're being blackmailed by people like this. I, I just feel like there should be a much harsher penalty for messing with the public system than these folks are likely to get. Yeah, I don't know. And I didn't say anything about deporting them after they served their prison term. I, I assume that would be part of the package, but I don't know. Yeah, it's just, this was a nightmare. And, and think about it, you're a school district, you're trying to educate children, and all of a sudden you lose access to your computers because these guys want you to pay them a bunch of money. Just bad news all the way around. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Last summer, a lot of people were worried about what would happen to their electric bills, especially when the very existence of NOPEC, which offers discounts, was threatened. Here we are in winter and things have stabilized. Layla, will NOPEC customers continue to get a good deal for a while? NOPEC has locked in prices until May. So so yes, there's that promise of stability and, and the rate looks pretty decent. From December through the May meter reading, NOPEC says its standard price will be 6.6 cents per kilowatt hour. That's up slightly from the 6.45 cents NOPEC customers currently pay, but it's cheaper than the 9.6 cents or higher that a lot of customers would get by default if they didn't have NOPEC as an option. Everyone probably remembers back in summer of 2022, NOPEC saw its prices spike to 12 cents per kilowatt hour. So to save customers money, they dropped 550,000 customers from their aggregation plan. Most have now re-enrolled on account of this new stability, uh, except for customers in Cleveland, Lorraine, or Shaker. All of them have joined other aggregations. Yeah, this was a good story to, to see because if you'll recall, people were just distraught last year. And, and bills did go up. Let's face it, this is... It's kind of good news, but overall, people are paying a lot more for electricity, but at least there's some stability going forward. Yeah, they. it sounded like the stability is sort of a new thing. <laughs> they said that holding the price steady for the six-month period is is uh, is sort of unusual. They say that a hedging consultant firm that NOPEC hired last year helped them keep costs locked in for a longer period of time, but the energy market is so volatile. So we'll see if that kind of stability becomes a regular feature of the NOPEC, NOPEC plan. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
We've been detailing a child care crisis all year in our Rethinking Child Care series, but there's one stat we have yet to discuss. Laura, what percentage of parents rely on relatives to watch their kids during the workday? It's about 20%, at least this one point in time that the U.S. Census found. And the U.S. has about 62.7 million parents with kids under 18. 50.7 million of those people are in the workforce. So obviously, you don't need childcare if you've got a 13-year-old. Although, you know, maybe you do for some periods of time. So not every one of them is going to need childcare. But what came across really interesting is not only that a fifth of them are getting relatives to watch them, whether that's a parent or an aunt or uncle or something, is that a whole lot of them have no childcare at all. And they're they're just making do. As household income increased, so did the use of professional daycare centers and preschools, as well as before and after care. And that just shows how ridiculously expensive it is to get that kind of care for your kids and how hard it is to find. He raised an interesting point, too, about at what age do kids need child care? You said not at 13. Um, but it, And people regularly ask this question, like there's some set standard. And I had reason many years ago when my kids were young, I was talking to the head of the Department of Children and Family Services. They had incorrectly come after me for child support for a kid who wasn't mine. And, uh, and I got into a conversation with her because we fixed it and she was very gracious about their mistake. And I said, hey, look, what, what age can kids be left home alone? And she goes, oh, no, there's, there's no age. It depends on the kid. It depends on yeah. the family. It's a very wide range. And that's what makes the job of DCFS so challenging is when they go in, it'd be easy. If there was a certain age and the kid wasn't watched, they could, they could deal with it. But they have to assess the whole situation to understand whether it's okay or not. Right. And you have to know what the rules are and who you have in your kind of your stable, your village that's looking out after these kids and just, you know, how responsible the child is. And we used aftercare until the pandemic. And then, you know, we started working from home. And if, you know, so I think a lot of that depends. So we don't know from the survey how many of these parents are working from home, what the situation is. But it does seem clear with that household income thing that we have made childcare just prohibitively expensive for a lot of families. And God bless the grandparents that are watching their kids' kids, because that is a huge help. And I know plenty of parents who rely on that. And good for you. I, I, I <laughs> You're making this world work. Yeah. And having just spent Thanksgiving weekend with an almost four-year-old, I know how much work that is. So I agree with you. That's a lot to put on the grandparents, especially if they're getting elderly and more infirm. If I could jump in here with some kudos, I think Laura has brought up a huge issue that seems to be flying under the radar for everybody else. And I really think that our child care, our series of articles that Laura and others have done is really starting to bring this to the forefront, at least in our area. Yeah, it's oh, that that's music to my ears. <laughs> no, Alex, no great job, Laura. Really great job. It's been a huge success. I mean, there, nobody was really talking about this. And now, you're right, Lisa, people are talking about this. So we're going to continue to champion it in the new year. It's a, it's a great issue, and Laura has done a terrific job. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
The killing of off-duty Cleveland police officer Shane Bartek on New Year's Eve was chilling as a would-be carjacker shot him following her string of violent crimes. This case seemed like such a slam dunk. The evidence was clear, but we had to wait until Thursday to find out if Tamara McCloyd would remain in prison for life for the murder. Lisa, what did the appeals court say about her challenge to the conviction? Yeah, they unanimously upheld aggravated murder conviction of 20-year-old Tamara McCloyd. That means she will remain in prison for life for the New New Year's Eve 2021 killing of Cleveland police officer Shane Bartek in an attempted carjacking. So uh, basically, McCloyd's argument in her appeal was that a judge made comments during jury selection about the grand jury having enough evidence for the aggravated murder charge. But the three-judge panel found that this didn't affect McCloyd's right to a fair trial. They said there was enough evidence for the charge. And the panel also upheld four aggravated robbery conventions against McCloyd that were that was earlier this month. Those robberies took place in the weeks before Bartek's murder in the parking lot of his Cleveland apartment complex. Two others were also convicted for those robberies and they have been sentenced as well. I guess she has nothing to lose by continuing to appeal it, but I I just, there's no chance that she's going to get out. I mean, she did it. She clearly did it. It's a horrible crime that she committed. And this is what happens when you commit a horrible crime. I just am surprised that we keep coming back to it because the door should be slammed shut at this point. You you killed a guy while trying to steal his car, an off-duty cop. You're done. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Pretty big story with a LeBron James angle came from the Washington Post Thursday. Laura, what did the story say about Maverick Carter, the longtime James associate, and gambling? That he was betting illegally on NBA games. And obviously, there were some places that you could bet legally, but he wasn't doing it that way. And it wasn't legal in Ohio, and it wasn't legal in a lot of states. He spoke to federal agents in November of 2021 as part of their investigation into this minor league, former minor league baseball player named Wayne Nix. He pleaded guilty to charges related to running a legal offshore betting business. Carter hasn't been charged in this case, but according to the Washington Post, he placed bets on 20 basketball and football games over the course of the year. He said the bets had nothing to do with LeBron James, who, by the way, is a longtime buddy of him, his from, from high school. And he said he told agents he didn't remember placing any bets on the Lakers, but these were not like 25 bucks. These were thousands of dollars in bets. This is going to be a problem for the future. For the longest time, sports leagues had an absolute prohibition against anybody related to them gambling. But as we have legalized sports gambling across the country, associates of players are going to bet. It's legal. There's no prohibition against it. The leagues can't stop your associates from gambling but it and and nobody has accused anybody of doing anything wrong here to to skew outcomes he just gambled on games but but the current state of affairs does create that vulnerability that somebody down the line might have an associate in the game that they try and get to change the outcome so that they can win more money. It's a scary moment. It, it's shocking for anybody that's been around a long time because it was an absolute prohibition. Remember Pete Rose? I mean, he's yeah. still oh, yeah. I'm just wondering how his family feels right now after like his name being synonymous with like cheating for decades. 
But he he gambled on on games, and he's banned from the Hall of Fame, and he's mm-hmm. persona non grata, and now everybody's betting, as we discussed earlier, huge amounts of money. So just a huge sea change in our approach to sports. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This weekend is supposed to be a bit warm, but very rainy. So maybe a visit to the Cleveland Art Museum is the best thing to do. And Layla art critic Steve Litt highly recommends a visit to the porcelain exhibit. Why is he so impressed with it? And is he the only writer ever to use the word equipoise on our website? <laughs> what a beautiful word, right? It's it's perfect for a story <laughs> like this, too. Uh, you know, I, I would love to see the world through Steve Litt's eyes for just a moment. <laughs> and luckily, you know, he really lets you do that when he writes pieces like this. This is a review of Colors of Kyoto, the Seifu the Seifu Yohi Ceramic Studio at the Cleveland Museum of Art. It's an exhibition that focuses on five generations of a Japanese artistic dynasty whose members are known for making these incredible pieces with what Steve describes as a deliciously refined sense of color, materiality, and decorative design. Visitors to this exhibit will see porcelain and stoneware ceramics used for making and enjoying sencha, which is a type of Japanese green tea made with whole leaves. And you'll also see water jars, candy dishes, decorative vases, and other pieces. These ceramics were among more than 100 objects or groups of objects that were donated by collectors James and Christine Husinger of, of Berea. Steve says that the Husingers were long active as collectors of Japanese prints and Japanese lacquered objects, and they became fascinated by the Seifu Yohi studio more than 20 years ago. They were really taken with the beauty of this work, and after hearing a lecture about one of the artists, Yohi III, at the museum, James Husinger decided to devote his collecting efforts to his works. Steve's review of this exhibit, I thought was so interesting. It's like a beautiful art history class. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to go see it. And again, it's rainy weekend, so maybe this is the time to do it. He did a beautiful job. You're right. The writing he puts into this just brings you right into it. He, he sucks you in. He explains it all as, in very accessible terms, except for equipoise, because I had to look that up. He has used that word once before in 2015. Those are the only two references I can find on all of Cleveland.com. <laughs> you went to the for that word? Good for you. I did. <laughs> <laughs> what is the definition? Oh, it's like counterbalance. Yeah, it was it was one that I'm like, okay, equipoise. No one in our readership is. But you know, know just it's such a lyrical means. word that you don't even. It's a lyrical it word, but you have it to look it up. It just fits in the man. sentence. It, yes, it it very much does. I I wonder. Stieglitz is lifting all of our education with his writing. It's good. It's good to do that. I think there should be one word in every newspaper that makes you have to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly is expanding the vocabulary of readers at cleveland.com and the plain dealer. Check out his story. It's on cleveland.com. I don't think it's been in print yet, but it will be with some of the beautiful pictures. That's it for our Friday episode. That's it for the week. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. I hope you all have a good weekend. Thanks to everybody who joins us for these episodes. Come back Monday. We'll be talking about the news. 